Well, we have the privilege of coming again to study the book of Romans, the most theological book in all of the Bible. We see how Paul uh, lays out uh, his line of thinking, and we are now in that section of the life-changing relevance of the gospel. Particularly, we have seen in Romans 12 and verse 1 and 2 that the mercies of God are to motivate us uh, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and to have our minds to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And if our minds are going to be transformed, then we need to have, first of all, humility in the context of the church. And then he moves to the theme of love that is very broad in this uh, section, likely uh, carrying us on through uh, Romans 14 with uh, the weaker brother, the stronger brother, that love is our great motivation. And I had a couple of uh, questions regarding the kinds of love. You've seen this screen before. Uh, we can say that a lot of 13 and 14 into 15 is a spelling out of what love means. So let me just mention anew the various categories of agape love is what Matthew Henry uses as his organizing principle for this section of the book of Romans. Uh, this mind transform will lead as well to a self-denying love to the church. It will lead to a self-denying love to our enemies. And now the section that we are in, this love, this renewing of our mind, is going to lead as well to a submission to the government. Now, it's apparent that there's a radical shift in emphasis from not taking your own vengeance in chapter 12 to our paragraph beginning at Romans 13. Some feel the change is so abrupt that this paragraph does not belong here. Now, when someone says they're not sure if this portion of the Word of God belongs here, you get kind of suspicious that they don't like something in that paragraph, and that motivates them a little bit. But nonetheless, there is no textual reason to remove it. And let's not forget that Paul has been teaching, is teaching on the human government, is a balance to the believer's agape love. In chapter 12, I am not to execute wrath. I am not to execute my own personal vengeance. 13, don't do that because you know that God's going to do it, and sometimes God does it through his civil government uh, servants. So Paul teaches us that uh, though in this great wrong and loss that I suffered does not justify me killing my enemy, there may be a place for the state to kill my enemy, to bring it down to just as plain as we can. So let's leave Romans 13, 1 through 7, right where God put it. One is written. It would be quite strange if in writing to the believers in Rome, the apostle did not attempt to provide some pastoral counsel to those who were there, as it seems psychologically torn between experiencing the inauguration of the age to come, the beginning of the age to come, 
and rejoicing in their new life in Christ and being called by God to live out their lives in a suitable manner as members of this age. So what we need to be thinking of, and this comment will help us, um, that comment will be uh, explained if we think in terms of we live in the present age, where there is something of eternity or the age to come that is broken into this age. And sometimes believers who know that they've been regenerated, know that the kingdom of Christ is the kingdom that is going to continue for all time, they can kind of want to get rid of things of this present age that necessarily uh, need to stay. In this overlap of the ages, it is a period of great tension. We are new creatures in Christ, but we still have indwelling sin. The creation groans longing for our redemption when creation will be ultimately redeemed as well. Christ's eternal rule over us has begun, but we still have pagan governments over us. That author before continues, for even though Christians at Rome were new people in Christ, whose lives had been changed by the message of the Christian gospel and the ministry of God's Spirit among them, they were confronted with the troubling concerns of a civil, civic and political nature that were of great practical importance to them. Nero is on the throne when Paul is writing to the Romans. You can understand that they may have questions, number one, whether or not they should continue to pay taxes, revenues, and tolls to their local civic officials who are so thoroughly pagan. And two, to what extent they should respect and honor their city's governmental authorities that has reached out and has claimed peoples and claimed lands throughout that Mediterranean region. Some believers at Rome likely thought that the beginning of the new age in human history with the coming of Jesus required their rejection of all forms of human government and their refusal to pay taxes and tolls levied by any human authority. Other believers likely remember the edict of Claudius in 49 AD, which kicked a bunch of Jews out of Rome because the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of one Crestus, this coming, I believe, from Tacitus, the Roman historian. There was also an earlier edict of Claudius in 41, which allowed the Jews of Rome to continue their traditional mode of life, but ordered them not to hold meetings. So if that applies to the church, you can see that there is something of a conflict. What's happening in 57 AD when Romans was written? Nero was proclaimed emperor in 54 at the age of 17. His rule has been commonly associated with impulsiveness and tyranny, but was for the most part liked by the general populace and only really disliked by the aristocracy. Early in his reign, he was heavily advised, but he slowly became more independent. In AD 59, encouraged by his mistress, Papia, Nero murdered his mother, Agrippina. 
His leading advisor, Seneca, was discharged and forced to commit suicide after the great fire of Rome occurred in July, uh, AD 64, it was rumored that Nero had ordered the fire to clear space for a new palace. This is not exactly a good guy. Very plainly, Paul is not advocating the overthrow of a corrupt government. But we need to realize something of the difficulty of the questions. Karl Barth, who is no close theological friend of mine, but he observed in Germany during the days of Hitler that many of his teachers of Christian theology were using Paul's statements of Romans 13 to legitimize Hitler's quite perverse racial and nationalistic policies which culminated in the Jewish Holocaust and his invasion of these other countries. So what does the believer do when a Hitler appears on the stage? What are we to do when the government that is to protect her citizens from murderers and foreign invaders becomes the great murderer and the great foreign invader? Well, I don't want to even attempt to answer that this morning, and probably not even in the weeks to come. But I want to lay this out there as these are critically important issues. And if some want to say that Romans 13, I'm not sure it should be in the Bible, I want us to make a quick survey through the scriptures so that we see that Romans 13 is not an isolated teaching of God. It is not contrary to the rest of the word of God. So let us proceed carefully and have a breadth of perspective as we come from our confession. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the earth, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good, and to this end has armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. So with that, if you care to come to your handout sheet, we'll consider Roman numeral one. God has used, God has used the various civil governments down through history. First of all, A, an Old Testament survey. We are flying over a vast amount of land. I am telling myself in my pre-sermon pep talk to cover this first point in 10 minutes there are about nine pages of notes to be covered in that time. First of all, little number one, the need of a civil government. Cain murdered Abel, but God said nobody should murder Cain. It points to the need later on of a civil government. God puts a mark on him, but says anybody who kills Cain is going to get a worse judgment. Little number two, the beginnings of a civil government for capital punishment. There was a new beginning after the flood. God has had this great experiment in which he wants to show to man what man is going to be like unrestrained. 
And what happens is that the evil line overrules the godly line. So at the time of Noah, there are eight of them that go on the boat and God destroys the rest. But there's a new beginning. Genesis 9 says, be fruitful and multiply. There are intentional allusions back to the original creation. But here's the change. Genesis 9 and verse 5. And your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And a key lesson that comes out of Genesis 9 is the value of human life. We are made in the image of God. And God is saying that with my new beginning, because the hearts of some men are only evil continually, when we come across that kind of aggressive, abusive, murderous individual, it's not going to be as earlier with Cain. Now there is this new thing. Capital punishment is given to the society. But how messed up is our society? Where there is the work to let the murderer to go free and there shouldn't be consequences on them, and we want to murder the relatively innocent in the womb. No, there needs to be capital punishment. Number three, the beginnings of civil governments in the nations. Genesis 10, there is the Tower of Babel, there's the confusion of language, and people are dispersed. And just to notice, Genesis 10 and verse 5 from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with its own language, by their clans, and in their nations. All these various nations are getting started. And then fourthly, the beginnings of a civil government for protection from foreign powers. I'm thinking of Genesis 14. You need not turn there. Genesis 14, verse 8 to 12 We've got four kings, king of Sodom, king of Gomorrah, king of Admah, king of Zeboim, king of Bela. And then we've got another list of kings, these four kings from the east, first five in the Sodom area. Shedolamor, king of Elam, then the king of Goim, king of Shinar, and the king of uh, Elisar. There's the four kings against the five. Why do I... It's the beginning of nations. And on the other hand, we've got Abraham. And Abraham says, I don't really have a nation, but I got these friends who are tribal leaders as well. And my friends, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, we've made an alliance. And when there is this foreign invader that has come in and stolen my relatives and perhaps the relatives of others of his allies, then Abram's going to take his 318 trained men along with the armies of his friends, and they win a great battle. We learn many things from this. This is the beginning of a nation, these tribal leaders associating together. 
And there is such a thing as a righteous war. When an evil king says, I'm going to conquer and I'm going to steal and I'm going to murder. And other governments respond and say, no, you're not. We will stand up to you. But then fifthly, in this survey of the Old Testament, Moses opposes the commands of the Egyptian government. Well, that kind of stands out. Nine times Moses says the exact words, let my people go. Listen to one instance, Exodus 7, verse 16. And you, God speaking to Moses, shall say to him, Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. Instead of Moses submitting to Pharaoh in this particular situation, Moses announces to Pharaoh that he has failed to submit to God. We need this breadth of experience. But we have to think critically. Moses is doing so under direct revelation. Moses did not raise an army against Pharaoh. And the Lord ultimately destroyed Pharaoh, but not through the fighting of Israel. But then later, Israel will have an army and they will destroy nations as God directs them. Sixthly, evil abounding without a king. Twice in Judges we read, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, 17.6 and 21.25. There was no accountability, no government to encourage good and to discourage bad behavior. And there are times when we may say and we may feel, I do not like my civil government. But there's something that is worse maybe than having Nero on the throne. And that's having no one on the throne. And everyone is do doing what is right in their own eyes. Judges says anarchy is worse. Seven. Israel seeking the peace of Babylon, Jeremiah 29, 1-14. Jeremiah writes this letter to those who are living. He's in Jerusalem. He writes the letter over to Babylon. The nation has been displaced by another nation that is more powerful, run by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is full of greed. And he wants more people, and he wants more money, and he wants more things, and he wants more lands. That's not real good. And yet God, through Jeremiah, says, you need to just settle in there at Babylon, take wives, beget sons and daughters, verse 7, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and to pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Jeremiah is not saying you need to foment rebellion and see if you can't run away from Nebuchadnezzar. Now settle in, recognize the government that is there, 
and even pray for it. Number eight, Daniel sees God behind the various earthly kingdoms. He has a thanksgiving prayer from Daniel 2 and verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, for he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have no understanding. Then when he speaks to the king, he says, well, you're the head of gold. Then there's another kingdom. Then there's a third kingdom of bronze. There's a fourth kingdom of iron. And then there is this kingdom that is established without hands. And this is a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. You see, I could be a believer at Rome and say, Hey, Paul, I just read Daniel chapter 2. And that's why I'm organizing a Christian militia here to overthrow the Roman government. Because Jesus is the only king that is going to be on his throne forever. Now, secondly, B, the New Testament survey. Jesus recognized Rome's right to rule Palestine. You know the passage. Uh, the, the scribes and the leaders are coming and they, they want to get the Romans to kill Jesus. So they come cleverly and they say, should we honor Caesar? And Jesus then says, he doesn't pull a coin out of his pocket, but he asks them to pull a coin out of, show me a denarius. And they reach into their pocket and they show the coin that they are using to buy things. And whose image is on that? Well, Caesar's image. Well, then you already know that there is some measure of honor that you are paying and ought to pay to Caesar, but there is a higher throne and you ought to pay that to God. Wonderful, wonderful illustration. You just proved that you already knew this. Secondly, in survey of the New Testament, Paul recognized the Roman governor ruling over Palestine. Paul is a Jew. He knows that it's the Jewish nation. It's their land. They're to be ruling over it. And yet, when he's arrested... He's able to say to Festus, the relatively new governor over Palestine, but he's a Roman governor. Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. He accepted the fact of Roman government. To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. Thirdly, Paul urged churches to pray for government officials. To the beginning organization of the churches that Timothy is working with there in Asia Minor. I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made 
for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Four, Peter recognized Rome's authority. 1 Peter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to their emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil. Do you hear the echo of Romans 13 there? I was surprised the first time I read that, that men suggesting that Peter is drawing from Romans 13. Well, they might have a point there. There's certainly a similarity. Fear God, honor the emperor. Roman numeral two. God instituted three spheres of limited government. I don't often bring Greek words in, but here I want to. Hupo, tasso. Hupo, under. Tasso, place. To place someone under. A military term. It's used of a Navy admiral, and he says, I want your ship there, and I want yours there, and I want this one, and you're bringing up the rear. This is our arrangement. I'm telling you where I want you to be, and this is our order. It's also used of the military. We're going to be marching. And when we're marching, you need to fall into your rank. Here's one group. As straight as these pews are, and the right distance away so I can look through and see a diagonal line and another diagonal line. Everybody is in their position. They have fallen into rank. And that word is used in these various institutions, these three spheres of limited government. First of all, A, God-ordained authority in the family. We have it with an elder who is having his children in subjection. He's got to have some authority that he brings to his own home. Uh, we've got it with the boy Jesus. Some of us in the history of the church have left a child here at the building for half an hour or so. Joseph and Mary left Jesus behind at Jerusalem. For what? Was it two days? Was it three days? And then they come back and they're astonished that here he is in the temple. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Imagine him saying that to dad, to Joseph, my father's business. You know who I am. You know that you gave me the name Jesus because I am to save my people from their sins. You know that I cannot die prematurely. Please don't be upset. And you know that if I'm not with you, that I am involved in my heavenly Father's business. I'm on a mission here. And, and, and then the next thing that we hear about Jesus is that he said to his parents, so from now on, I will be calling the shots because I am the Son of God. No, we don't quite read that. But instead, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was being submissive to them. He fell into rank towards them. So there it is, this 
authority that is established in the family. And one of the things that we ought to learn from this is that we have a responsibility to teach our children about limited authorities in the world. The state is not the first one to teach your child. The church is not the first one to teach your child. Mom and dad are the first ones to teach them there is an authority structure in God's world. And to the degree that we failed to teach them in the home, then they may not carry through with it and see it and learn it in the civil government and get into all sorts of trouble. Let us see God's expectation for that. We could move on and see the authority as structure in husband-wife relationship, Ephesians 5, 22 and 24, but I hasten on. Authority in the family. Secondly, B, God-ordained authority in the church. And I'm going to pick out one of my five passages here. It is Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. It's not our same hypotasa word. It's actually a stronger word. It's a, it's a word that would be used of if you're on the run and then you stop and you surrender, you yield yourself. Okay, what do you want me to do? Thirdly, see, a God-ordained authority in the civil government. Romans 13, 1 to 7, be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 5, one must be in subjection. Titus 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward our old people. Am I saying that the only time that we are to be showing courtesy and not quarreling is when we are speaking of politics? No. But in a context of politics, being submissive to them, there is this language, and that directs us to be careful about how we speak. Fourthly, D is just a listing. I say three, and I've got an A, A B, C, and D, that there is something of a God-ordained authority in the master-employer relationship. Do you plug that in the category of the state? Perhaps you do. Now, Roman numeral three. God is absolute over every limited government. First of all, A. Jesus has absolute authority over every limited human authority. He's raised from the dead, he sees the disciples, and he begins there in Matthew 28 to say them, say to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Paul, when he speaks to Titus, says, chapter 2, verse 5, wives submit. Chapter 2, verse 9, slaves submit. Chapter 3, verse 1, citizens submit. In Peter, we find those five categories of submission. 2.13, 
believing citizens be in subjection to the government. 2.18, servants, fall into rank to your masters. 1 Peter 3, verse 1, wives, be subject to your own husbands. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, younger, submit to your pastors. Every category of limited authority is listed out there by Peter, including Jesus. 1 Peter 3 and 22, Jesus Christ who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. They did not want to fall into rank to Jesus those fallen beings, but they were forced to subject themselves to Jesus. Let's come now to the book of Acts. Jewish rulers, the elders and the scribes investigate the healing of the lame man. And in connection with the healing of the lame man, notable miracle, and Peter and John and the others are teaching and everybody knows that God did this through Peter and John. And the lower throne commands the apostles saying, no speaking about Jesus. But there's a higher throne. And the higher throne says, preach the word in season and out of season. There are some times when it's going to be that men will welcome this message and times when it will not be so welcome when it seems out of season. So let's jump in with that bit of background to Acts chapter 4. And if you want to turn there, you're welcome to do so. Acts 4, I'll begin reading at verse 19. 18 is just the authority is saying they've charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, 19. But Peter and John answered them saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There is a lower throne and that's where you guys are. And I'm not going to despise your place. But there is a higher throne, fellas. And the higher throne is contradicting what you're saying. And we're going with the higher throne. Then we've got from Acts chapter 5. The high priest and the Sadducees arrest the apostles, put them in prison. They call for them to be brought out of prison. The, the, the guards come back and say, well, we, 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 we can't find them. They're not there. Somebody else comes in and says, you know, those guys you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Verse 28 of Acts 5. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. There is a throne higher than yours, fellows. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him at his right hand and as a leader and a savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of his sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. 
We told you not to speak. We're telling you again. And Peter is very, very clear about the message coming from the higher authority. And so right then and there, when they're being chewed out for violating the lower authority, they further violate the lower authority. Verse 40. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy. Uh, They did beat them before they released them. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. There is a higher throne. Daniel says to the powers that be, I would rather be thrown to the lions than stop praying to my God. And I will not obey you when you tell me to shut my mouth as far as praying to God And are we not surprised that God stops the mouths of lions because Daniel did not stop his mouth in praying to his God? When your parents absolutely contradict a direction coming from the higher throne, then you may disobey them. When your husband's commands involved a direct contradiction of what God has stated, you listen to the higher throne. When your pastors tell you to do something that is directly contradicting the word of God, you and I Listen to the higher authority. When your president's commands contradict God's commands, then listen to the higher throne. Jesus has absolute authority over every limited human authority. Now be careful with this. Don't twist it around. The pastor Mitch said that I could disobey my parents. That would be a lie. What I'm saying is when something, as you get older and mom and dad tell you that we're going to rob the bank and this is your job. No, it's not my job. And I'm willing to take the consequences for that. Secondly, B. Jesus has absolutely authority over every human. Not just over every limited human authority, but over every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. He made us for himself, and he expects us to obey him. And the way that each of us is born since Adam and Eve's rebellion and the curse on humanity 
is that we are born on the devil's side. And you may not like to hear that, but it's the truth. And it's the kindest thing for you to know the truth so that you can respond to it. Please listen to Paul describing what human nature is in and of itself. Romans 8, beginning at verse 5, but I'm going to focus on verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it, this mind set on the flesh, does not submit, does not fall into rank to God's moral law, does not submit to God's law. Here is the description of God's enemies. They are hostile towards God, first part of verse 7. The unbeliever does not fall into rank to God's Ten Commandments. That's the middle part of verse 7. And then the closing part of verse 7, the unbeliever cannot. It's one thing that he does not fall into rank. It's another thing that he cannot do it. And then in verse 8, the fourth description of the unbeliever is that he cannot please God. If you will not fall under rank to God and his commandments, and if you cannot fall under it, in that posture, you cannot please God. And I want us to close this morning by looking at one more submission passage. Ephesians 1, if you would. Ephesians 1 and verse 21. Here Paul is talking about the exalted Christ. It's one of his long sentences. I think it starts back in uh, verse 18. But we'll jump in at verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. When Jesus died, when he was raised from the dead, when he was exalted there in heaven, God says, I've taken everything of the created world and I have put it into rank. I have put it into its proper place. And where is that proper place? Under the feet of Jesus. If you're an unbeliever, then where has God placed you? Under the feet of Jesus. It's rather graphic. It's rather as if Paul is wanting to make a point. You cannot please God. You do not have a mind that is subject to the law of God, and you cannot, and in that posture you cannot please God, and you are placed under the feet of the glorified Christ. But where are you if you're a believer? and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. The one who's got his feet 
The other has got his head. If you're simply an unbeliever, you're in that mass of fallen angels, of all who ever lived and died in their sin. They're under the feet. But if you're a believer, you have the wonderful privilege of being part of the body of Christ, and you relate to the head of Christ, and the head of Christ gives you direction. My head tells this hand to go up, and it responds. And Jesus, the head, speaks to you, and you respond in faith. Where are you? If you are not being directed by the head of Jesus Christ, well, sadly, you're underneath the feet of King Jesus, along with the devil and all of the authorities and principalities, those powers of darkness, they're all under the feet of Jesus. And the very sobering reality is all of those underneath the feet of Jesus Christ outside of believers, all of those will experience what God has made for the devil and his angels. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, here we are looking at the civil government. It's one of three realms of limited government. But whenever we're considering the husband-wife relations, and, and even there, where the, the wife looks right through the husband and she honors her husband because she's looking at Jesus on his throne saying, my daughter, this is what I want you to do. And here it is, we come to the civil government, and, and it's not a hard thing to make a connection to Jesus Christ. All roads in Scripture lead to Jesus. And when it comes to submission to whatever authority it is, Jesus Christ occupies the highest throne. No longer resist God, but instead of resisting God, submit to Him. Submit to Him and call on Him. Tell Him that you want Him near and He will draw near. Let's pray. King Jesus, you are universal Lord. Encourage us right on our hearts the quickness with which Peter, John, the other early disciples respond when they are told to be quiet concerning you, Lord Jesus. In the one occasion, you judge whether it's right for us to obey your lower throne or God's higher throne. On the next occasion, we must obey God rather 
than men. Help us, Lord, to have a balanced perspective based on your word, that there are these limited authorities, but all of them are limited compared to your absolute authority, and we pray for every one of us that you would give us the desire to be out from under the feet and instead be a part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and be directed by him. Help us, Lord Jesus, to have you as our shepherd. And may it be the, the, the impulse of our hearts to, to hear you when you speak to us and to follow you, to follow your directions, to, to follow your lead, manifesting that we, are, we have hearts that are submissive to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.